we reflect on sexuality, then I hope one of the most basic insights in relationship to it, as we reflect on it, um, is that of dependent origination and emptiness. In other words, that we never, we are aware and we never lose sight of the fact that sexuality, like anything else, like everything else, does not exist independently of the way of looking. Sexuality doesn't exist uh, independent of the way of looking. It has no inherent existence as this or as that. It's always, in other words, coloured and shaped by the way that we're relating to it, the way that we're regarding it, our assumptions about it, and our assumptions about the path and about what is not it, or in contrast to it, spirituality or, or, or whatever, or morality or whatever. Uh, it's always shaped by a person who think, yeah, but it, it's, um, you might think this or that, but really sexuality is this. It's that really that is uh, so needs to be called into question. Um, just, uh, this is the uh, movement of avijja, not realizing the dependent origination of things, dependent on the way of looking. So we bring, uh, when we talk about sexuality, it's like, well, it's, what we're talking about is not um, a fixed, independently existent thing. And no matter how much it seems to be just a biological fact, <clears throat> um, we're talking about something and we can't look at it independent of all kinds of um, assumptions, ways of relating, regarding it, etc. And archetypal styles. You know, how open is our imaginal uh, uh, um, context, if you like, for what sexuality is and can be? So, you know, if we just use even just the, the, the uh, Greek sort of... Uh, gods as, as archetypes, you know, Aphroditic sexuality, if you like, the, the, the attention to pleasure and sensuality and the generative urge as well, in terms of procreation, etc., how different that is than, say, the Hermetic. Hermes not interested in uh, monogamy, for example, or the Dionysian uh, with the ecstasy and the... And the uh, uh, intensity there, uh, and also the eff effeminacy as much as the power and does. There's all these different uh, archetype, or the archetype of the um, the uh, faithful monogamous couple in marriage, etc. Uh, so we bring uh, both uh, conceptual ideas, assumptions, and a kind of um, narrowness or breadth of archetypal lens, if you like, to what sexuality is. Um, and some of that we get from the culture, from the wider culture, some of it from the subcultures that we move in. And we're always bringing something, and we, we're not talking about something that exists independently, that really is like this, or really is like that. 
So this is, if you like, a fundamental insight that we must keep in mind and keep in our uh, consciousness and as we're uh, you know, exploring sexuality and, and uh, opening it up as a topic. So I remember when I was undergrad psychology, undergrad studying psychology, and um, uh, it was the time that just after Richard Dawkins' uh, book, The Selfish Gene, had been released, and people were very uh, talking about it a lot, etc. And um, actually had him, Richard Dawkins, as a personal tutor for uh, a very short time, which is a whole other story. But um, anyway... Uh, a student uh, colleague of mine, a student friend of mine, um, was quite influenced by that book and that whole way of thinking. And he used to say back then, love is, is just uh, you know, a genetic program uh, to release certain chemicals in your brain. And that's what love is. That's all love is. And it's this very sort of fundamentalist, evolutionary, biological, survival of the fittest uh, genes, in this case, um, way way of uh, reducing things, way of looking at things that's very reductionistic. Or I mentioned, um, for instance, um, a, uh, a person I knew, a practitioner, who, again, had, had was very sort of adamant. Um, sexuality is just a biological impulse to procreation that's that's sort of been evolutionary selected etc and that was the same so he was very uh, intent on that on that conception of sexuality and that was the same person that I uh, described who, who described himself as addicted to internet porn is there any relationship there between the view and the behavior is the behavior kind of coming out of a certain view because it doesn't allow much more. Um, or, for instance, uh, Nicolas Chamfort is a sort of French moralist around the time of the French Revolution. And he said or wrote, Love is nothing but the contact of two epidermi. That's the biological word for skin. Two uh, skins, two skins, basically, two epidermi. Uh, love is nothing but the contact of two epidermi and the exchange of two pale fantasies. Um, I don't know enough about him to know whether that particular aphorism was actually coming uh, from a broken heart he had um, as his wife, I think, died. Um, or how much it was just the view that he arrived at at a certain point in life, I'm not sure. But anyway, there is that kind of view. And uh, talked about the Buddha and 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 uh, what he's uh, recorded as saying in the Pali Canon in relation to sexuality, and uh, very strong language, very dismissive, very. Um, there are views that reduce sexuality and lovemaking, etc., and even human love, um, in different ways, <coughs> and. Uh, pigeonhole it either either biologically or spiritually or this or that and I remember and I think I've told this story before in another context um, perhaps many years ago in a talk um, I remember being uh, teaching a retreat at uh, one of the major retreat centers in um, uh, in another country and uh, was sitting at lunch 
um, with uh, a few senior teachers and uh, some others around, and um, something came up because it had come to their attention that there was a sort of subgroup of teacher trainees, I think, in elsewhere in the country who had started a group or were affiliated with a group. I can't remember what it was called or exactly what they did, but it involved something like um, mindful sex, uh, a group for mindful sex or something like that, and, and may have involved mutual masturbation, or I think that was, I'm not quite sure of the details, but it was something like that. And they were promoting it as a sort of spiritual practice to integrate sexuality, to explore and open sexuality mindfully. And so I was um, just listening, really, because I didn't know much about it, and watching the back and forth of the, of the conversation. And what I was struck by was the immediate um, dismissal of this uh, this group and this idea and the wanting to be clearly disassociated from it and make sure the insight meditation world is clearly not uh, in any way referred to or associated with, etc. Um, and then some strong statements about how the Buddha taught that we need to let go of craving, etc. So this couldn't be related to Dharma, etc., etc. Um, and then in the very same uh, Mouthful, in fact, um, the teacher who said that, commenting on how this was such a lovely meal that we were um, being fed by the retreat staff, and um, and how this was in fact their favourite meal, etc. And just struck by the uh, kind of obliviousness or seeming obliviousness of those two statements. One's around the area of sensuality, around sexuality, and one's around the area of pleasant tasting food. And one was completely okay, uh, seemingly to just declare one's uh, enjoyment and that one had a favorite there, uh, etc. And one was really not okay. Um, so this this uh, struck me, uh, very. all this struck me very much at the time. And I, I just being, remember being struck mostly by the seeming lack of, of uh, openness and, and questioning there. And then, of course, and I can't remember if someone said this, you know, about ethics, and, and it's very easy um, in our world, the inside meditation world, etc., to regard um, yeah, issues around sexuality as being ethically much more grave than other ethical issues. So, for example, just, you know, be aware of how much... Uh, discrepancy there is between the kind of consternation and outrage and uh, um, tutting, etc., that goes uh, uh, in relation to um, eth- uh, sexual ethics um, and choices, etc., um, versus the the almost complete lack of uh, the same with regard to the ethics of something like climate change. Um, or uh, the, the the lack of people speaking up and speaking up in a way uh, making um, you know, teaching ethics around that, um, uh, or willing to speak up and take a position, a strong position. Whereas in relation to sexuality, that it's it's really draws a lot of um, as I said, heat, consternation, outrage, strong statements, very black and white, etc. People very ready to speak up. 
So really, I'm just wondering, um, as part of all this, if if sex, if sexuality, if and the relationship with sex and sexuality, and the view views that we hold and others hold of this, it, are, are we? And I'm including myself in this question as well, please. So, um, am I? Are we? Are you? And I exploring this deeply enough? The relationship with and the views of relationships within the views of sex and sexuality. Or are we just kind of, again, absorbing, drinking in, being indoctrinated by some kind of unquestioned or not fully questioned legacy of, for instance, um, uh, Western Christianity that, that saturates the culture? Even, even in the secular culture, the ethics of Christianity remain for the most part, as uh, I think Nietzsche pointed out. Um, so we're saturated by a Christian-influenced ethics, which have a certain view of body, sensuality, sexuality, for the most part, and uh, and also of Pali Canon Buddhism, Buddha Dharma. So my my, my uh, inquiry here is really into how open is my questioning, how open is our questioning about all this about the relationships and about the views. I'm absolutely not advocating some kind of moral nihilism of, of like, there should be no ethics, anything's fine around sexuality. No, please, I'm really not stating that. I'm more questioning how much questioning, and I don't know, how much questioning um, is there in, rela- in, in regard to the relationships, views, attitudes to sex, uh, sexuality and sensuality and eros. Uh, and as I said, for me as as well, can there be an exploration uh, rather than kind of contracting, cutting exploration short and contracting down to just we know the answer. This is the answer. This is the decree. So for me, I don't I don't know. It's an open exploration. There is not uh, as yet, at least, any arrival at a final answer there. But to, 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 to say something like sex is a distraction, sexual thoughts, sexual images, you know, it's a distraction, or in a, in a um, Dharma context, uh, to say something like that already implies a view, already wrapped up in such a statement, such a sort of apodictic statement, is, is already um, a view wrapped up in there. Anything can be a distraction. Anything at all. Um, food can be a distraction. Pleasant food, um, ideas, whatever it is. Anything can be a distraction. Ideas about the Dharma, whatever. And again, I'm, by saying that, I'm not, certainly not advocating not having ideas and being, quote, non-conceptual. It's just that anything can be a, quote, distraction. Or just, the Buddha said X, or the Buddha said Y. Um, again, implies all, all kinds of views. Can we unpack the views behind behind such a statement? The Buddha said X, therefore X. Views and fantasies, a lot of fantasy wrapped up in, in, in such a sort of um, compact sounding statement. What's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? Isn't the most important thing being a Buddhist? What is being a Buddhist? Is the most important thing freedom? And what does freedom mean? 
And how many kinds of freedom are there? Is the most important thing soul-making? Freedom and soul-making? What's important? And how does what I'm thinking and saying to myself and to others, does it actually reflect for me what the most important thing, or have other things got tangled in there, and I've not realized the assumptions, the views, and the fantasies operating there? Anytime anyone says Buddha set, <laughs> there's a lot of views, and, and, and particularly fantasies. What are they? Of path, of awakening, of Buddha, of, of tradition, all that. All these things that we've touched on, wrapped up, um, usually not seen. So, you know, is it really true um, that uh, sex, lovemaking, sexual arousal, energy, sexual images, uh, uh, you know, prevent samadhi? Is that really true, for example? Um, I could relate... um, for myself and for for um, many students who've told me and shared with me many experiences, actual or imaginal, uh, where where the uh, sexuality, the sexual energy, the sexual images, the actual uh, love making, sex, whatever, um, actually is is really quite supportive of samadhi. Uh, doesn't leave a kind of stickiness or craving or whatever or contraction of the being at all. Well, people kind of, and this is something we'll return to, either you are open to um, sex and sensuality or you're going for the unfabricated. Either this or that. Is that, is that really true? Is that really the case, that it's either or? Um, all we would need to do to disprove that is find some uh, celibate people who have not realized the unfabricated and who may want to, um, and some people who are not celibate um, who have uh, realized the unfabricated. And uh, this is certainly quite possible get into this either or thinking there's all kinds of things wrapped up in our conceiving and assuming around this Uh, or what happens is there's a real polarizing um, a kind of either and maybe it goes back to Plato and even Neoplatonism and that stuff or or the Buddha and the Pali canons rejection of sensuality and sexuality in favor of knowing the transcendent unfabricated or a rejection of anything transcendent. We'll come back to this later. Later, we know we've touched on it. The, the whole, the, the whole kind of um, field polarizes. Either this or that. Is it really? Is it really the case? Is that really true? <clears throat> so we can compare, for instance, such views as we were talking about before of my. Uh, um, undergraduate um, fellow student or this uh, other person who described himself as addicted to porn or what Chanfort said or what seemed to be being articulated um, at the teachers around the lunch table, etc. Um, compare that with views of sex and of sexuality, whether 
actual physical sex or imaginal um, with, for example, what we touched on the other day, um, the view of sexuality and sex um, part- participating, our participating in that, through that, um, participating in mirroring, echoing uh, something much larger, something cosmic, and even perhaps creating or healing uh, the divine in that. What a different view that is of what sexuality is, or should we say could be, can be, how it can be transformed, again, by the way of looking. Uh, You know, really quite a a different view. And I wonder, sometimes I wonder, um, if, uh, if that kind of view of participating in something much larger, uh, something more cosmic, um, through sex, participating in something much larger and more cosmic, if that sense is actually, perhaps, I don't know if this is true, perhaps easier for women, um, because of the cycles of menstruation, for example, and because of um, the potential, at least, if, if not the um, actuality of, of pregnancy, the one really feels one is, um, uh, I've been told by someone, you know, you're subject to something there in the cycles and in the what is being born in you and coming through you and what your body is subject to your whole being is subject to menstruation and pregnancy, etc. Um, uh, you're subject to something much larger. And you can feel, oh, there's the possibility of feeling that in a, in a very different way. Much more embedded, cosmically reflecting the, the earth and the cosmic cycles. And something bigger, bigger than you are. Whereas, potentially at least for the male... Uh, it's possible to um, scatter one seed, sow one seed, enter and leave, and not have that sense, uh, if you like, be a sense of just, just be dipping in and out and not being caught up in something or uh, uh, at the center of something much, much vaster much more multidimensional, much more um, cosmic in its, in its order. It's, it's much, perhaps, easier for the woman to feel that, uh, for the female to feel that, than it is for the male, perhaps. <clears throat> but compare um, those kind of views I was talking about before with that kind of participatory view, or um, I'm going to read you something from the myth of Inanna, uh, and the court, her court, Yunana was a Sumerian goddess, uh, and her courtship with Dumusi, the uh, shepherd, um, who may have been a mortal, it's unclear, I'm not an expert on this myth at all, but may have been a mortal who through um, lovemaking with Inanna and coupleship with um, Inanna, the goddess, uh, may have become divine. So there's parallels, all kinds of parallels here to what we've been talking about. I'm going to read you, it's actually quite long, but because it's so different than the typical um, ways we regard sexuality in our culture uh, or cultures, um, I think it's worth reading uh, 
at length, um, just to get a completely different sense of the um, regard, the reverence, the texture of um, what sexuality is and what lovemaking can be um, in the view. So, Inanna, I'm reading now, at her mother's command, bathed and anointed herself with scented oil. She covered her body with royal white robe. She readied her dowry. She arranged her precious lapis beads around her neck. She took her seal in her hand. So she's a goddess, remember. Dumusi, the shepherd, he's becoming the king uh, through this lovemaking. Dumusi waited expectantly. Inanna opened the door for him. Inside the house she shone before him like the light of the moon. Dumusi looked at her joyously. He pressed his neck close against hers. He kissed her. Inanna spoke. What I tell you, let the singer weave into song. What I tell you, let it flow from ear to mouth. Let it pass from old to young. My vulva, the horn, the boat of heaven, is full of eagerness like the young moon. Just as an aside, I read a uh, a short interview with Diane uh, Walkstein, who uh, translated this uh, not too long ago. And she had... Uh, she was talking about translations made first in 1937 of the Sumerian um, myth. Um, and they kept uh, the words like vulva, etc., um, in the Latin. Because back then, you, you just could not publish such things in English. The culture was not ready, she said. And she thinks, we're more ready now. Um, but she found that uh, kind of amusing as well. Um, so my vulva, the horn of the horn, my vulva, the horn, the boat of heaven is full of eagerness, like the young moon. My untilled land fa- lies fallow. As for me, Inanna, who will plow my vulva? Who will plow my high field? Who will plow my wet ground? As for me, the young woman, who will plow my vulva? Who will station the ox there? Who will plow my vulva? Dumusi replied, Great lady, the king will plough your vulva. I, Dumusi the king, will plough your vulva. Inanna said, Then plough my vulva, man of my heart, plough my vulva. At the king's lap stood the rising cedar. Plants grew high by their side. Grains grew high by their side. Gardens flourished luxuriantly. Inanna sang, He has sprouted, he has burgeoned, he is lettuce planted by the water, he is the one my womb loves best, my well-stocked garden of the plain, my barley growing high in its furrow, my apple tree which bears fruit up to its crown, he is lettuce planted by the water. My honey man, my honey man sweetens me always, my lord, the honey man of the gods, he is the one my womb loves best. His hand is honey, his foot is honey, he sweetens me always. My eager, impetuous caresser of the navel, my caresser of the soft thighs, he is the one my womb loves best. He is lettuce planted by the water. Dumusi sang, O lady, your breast is your field. Inanna, your breast is your field. Your broad field pours out the plants. Your broad field pours out grain. Water flows from on high for your servant. Bread flows from on high for your servant. Pour it out for me, Inanna. I will drink all you offer. Inanna sang, Make your milk sweet and thick, my bridegroom. 
my shepherd, I will drink your fresh milk. Wild bull dumusi, make your milk sweet and thick, I will drink your fresh milk. Let the milk of the goat flow in my sheepfold, fill my holy churn with honey cheese. Lord dumusi, I will drink your flesh milk, your fresh milk. My husband, I will guard my sheepfold for you. I will watch over your house of life, the storehouse, the shining, quivering place which delights Sumer, the house which decides the fates of the land, the house which gives the breath of life to the people. I, the queen of the palace, will watch over your house. Dumusi spoke. My sister, I would go with you to my garden. Inanna, I would go with you to my garden. I would go with you to my orchard. I would go with you to my apple tree. There I would plant the sweet, honey-covered seed. Inanna spoke. He brought me into his garden. My brother, Dumusi, brought me into his garden. I strolled with him among with him among the standing trees. I stood with him among the fallen trees. By the apple tree I knelt as is proper, before my brother coming in song, who rose to me out of poplar leaves, who came to me in the midday heat. Before my lord, Dumusi, I poured out plants from my womb. I placed plants before him. I poured out plants before him. I placed grain before him. I poured out grain before him. I poured out grain before my womb. Inanna sang, Last night as I, the queen, was shining bright. Last night as I, the queen of heaven, was shining bright. As I was shining bright and dancing, singing praises at the coming of night, he met me, he met me. My lord de Musi met me. He pushed his hand to my hand. He pressed his neck close against mine. My high priest is ready for the holy loins. My lord Dumusi is ready for the holy loins. The plants and herbs in his field are ripe. O oh, Dumusi, your fullness is my delight. She called for it. She called for it. She called for the bed. She called for the bed that rejoices the heart. She called for the bed that sweetens the loins. She called for the beg bed of kingship. She called for the bed of queenship. Inanna called for the bed. Let the bed that rejoices the heart be prepared. Let the bed that sweetens the loins be prepared. Let the bed of kingship be prepared. Let the bed of queenship be prepared. Let the royal bed be prepared. She spread the bridal sheet across the bed. She called to the king, the, bread, the bed is ready. Inanna called to her bridegroom, the bed is waiting. He put his hand in her hand. He put his hand to her heart. Sweet is the sleep of the hand to hand. Sweeter still is the sleep of heart to heart. Inanna spoke. I bathed for the wild bull. I bathed for the shepherd Dumusi. I perfumed my sides with ointment. I coated my mouth with sweet-smelling sweet amber. I painted my eyes with coal. He shaped my loins with his fair hands. The shepherd Dumusi filled my lap with cream and milk. He stroked my pubic hair. He watered my womb. He laid his hands on my holy vulva. He smoothed my black boat with cream. He quickened my narrow boat with milk. He caressed me on the bed. Now I will caress my high priest on the bed. I will caress the faithful shepherd Dumusi. I will caress his loins, the shepherd of the land. I will decree a sweet fate for him. The queen of heaven, 
the heroic woman greater than her mother, who has presented the May by Enki, I don't know what that means, Inanna, the first daughter of the moon, decreed the fate of Demusi. And then there's another passage, but I'll, I'll just read a little bit more. Um, uh, her advisor, if you like, Ninshibur, um, the faithful servant of the holy shrine of Uruk, led Damusi to the sweet thighs of Inanna and spoke, My queen, here is the choice of your heart, the king, your beloved bridegroom. May he spend long days in the sweetness of your holy loins. Give him a favorable and glorious reign. Grant him the king's throne, firm in its foundations. Grant him the shepherd's staff of judgment. Grant him the enduring crown with radiant and noble diadem. From where the sun rises to where the sun sets, from north to south, from the upper sea to the lower sea, from the land of the Hulupu tree to the land of the cedar, let his shepherd staff protect all of Suma and Akkad. As the farmer, let him make the fields fertile. As the shepherd, let him make the sheepfolds multiply. Under his reign, let there be vegetation. Under his reign, let there be rich grain. In the marshland, may the fish and birds chatter. In the canebrake, may the young and the old reeds grow high. In the steppe, may the deer and wild goats multiply. In the orchards, may there be honey and wine. In the grasslands, may the lettuce and cress grow high. In the palace, may there be long life. May there be flood water in the Tigris and the Euphrates. May the plants grow high on their banks and fill the meadows. May the lady of vegetation pile the grain in heaps and mounds. O oh, my queen of heaven and earth, queen of all the universe, may he enjoy long days in the sweetness of your loins. The king went with lifted head to the holy loin. He went with lifted head to the loins of Inanna. He opened wide his arms to the holy priestess of heaven. Inanna spoke, My beloved, the delight of my eyes met me. We rejoiced together. He took his pleasure of me. He brought me into his house. He laid me down on the fragrant honey bed. My sweet love, lying by my heart, tongue playing, one by one, my fair Demusi did so fifty times. Now my sweet love is sated. So it's possible, I suppose, some people could hear that, interpret it, as, and deconstruct it historically. Ah, yes, well, here was the beginning of, uh, or at some point, agriculture was very important to this civilization, and this was just their way of not understanding agriculture, so they kind of presented a myth of how the crops grew and they prayed so that the crops would not fail them and the floodwaters would come and irrigate the soil and all that. There's a kind of way of hearing it that, um, again, puts it back, reduces it to some kind of um, biological evolutionary impulse um, from an ignorant time where they didn't understand the science of agriculture, etc., etc. Or you can... um, here in that in that poetry there the the as i said the the very different regard um for uh love making for sex for sexuality for sensuality there's nothing there that implies any kind of dirtiness or less than or demean demeanness it's juicy it's 
completely holy because it's tied in with the cosmos. It, it's full of cosmopoesis, it's full of, um, yes, it's full of the earth and references to the fertility of the earth and the agriculture and the blessings of that, honey and wine and orchards and, um, and, and, and fields and milk. Um, yes, absolutely, but this whole thing is... is uh, redolent, pregnant, overflowing with um, multi-dimensionality of, of divinity, of spirit, of reverence, of a sense of participation, of the sense, I, I feel, of the, the um, sexual act and the human sexual act reflecting divinity, uh, reflecting uh, uh, the, the vision in cosmopoesis there, reflecting and um, echoing, participating in the cosmic very, very different um, sense and gives rise to a whole different sensibility in regard to um, sexuality and sensuality there. And, you know, it's interesting. So we live in a different time now and a very different culture, etc. Um, when we come to sex... <coughs> Um, it's interesting to kind of see what the intentions that nowadays are, um, what we can kind of um, use sex for, or, or uh, what what is the intention in entering into um, sexual acts, sexual acts, sexuality between um, between people. Um, so one, it's possible, um, it's certainly possible that sex is just reduced to wanting to experience pleasant sensations, or, or that that's a part of it, I want to experience pleasure, um, uh, pleasant basically. Um, it's also possible that um, we may be using sex for, to, 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 to some degree or as part of the mix there for a kind of what we might call ego gratification or to prop up uh, or or to try and inflate a certain self-view, a certain ego image if you like in the poor sense of the term image and either that's through making sexual conquests and you know, wearing them as a feather in one's hat uh, as a kind of ego gratification or um, of uh, using uh, the, the sex as a kind of interpreting it as an indication of one's own desirability or one's own lovability. He loves me, she loves me, um, whatever it is, they love me. Uh, how do I know? Well, because because we had sex. Because, uh, you know, so it's either desirability or lovability or some mixture there. Well, all this is possible. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly speaking, sex can be for political reasons. Certainly in the history of um, different cultures, it, that has been, uh, you know, um, marriages and uh, liaisons have been arranged for political reasons, for uh, empire reasons, all, all kinds of things. But even within a relationship, there's, if you like, um, the, the, the sort of... Uh, p political uh, the possibility that sex is uh, granted or withheld or used for you know in a kind of uh, strategizing maneuvering for for other stuff as well you know um, is sometimes you know we uh, there's the possibility that uh, one is approaching um, the sex just 
either just or in part, um, seeking a release of stress, a release of tension. And whatever, whether it's work or something around the home or something or other, and there's a certain amount of energetic stress that accumulates in the body and tension, and certainly um, orgasm or whatever um, uh, can, can kind of discharge that. And so sometimes, actually, um, one is driven by that. Um, and then psycholo- you know, psychologically, it's interesting just uh, in terms of you know, what's giving rise to that stress in the first place. And can be all kinds of psychological factors that have nothing to do with you know, how busy we are or how, how much stress there is at work or whatever it is. Um, so all, all these are you know, possible factors um, or kind of intentions within our... Um, within our sex, possible at times in different proportions. Um, and then we mentioned, you know, there's, there's many, um, uh, the accumulation of energy. So some people, the, the actual consciously entering into um, sexuality, as we, described, as we described in some tantric practices or some views of what tantrism involves, is actually entering into conscious sex with another um, or actually with one with oneself um, and and deve- you know trying to um, accumulate uh, gather the sexual energy in certain channels in the body and uh, either that opens up the consciousness or it's just uh, gathering the bliss etc um, instead of discharging it in an orgasm and of course, one can the the reason for having sex can can be to do with love, to expressing love, um, and feeling the connection, the heart connection of love between two people. Of course, and sex can be, um, if you like, uh, for the sake of, of soul and for the sake of soul making to some degree, or that can be involved in it. And in that case, um, I would say the imaginal is involved just based on everything we've been saying about soul and eros, the imaginal is involved. So it can, can come, come to sex um, or want sex with all these different intentions and, and mixed together and prob- probably lots more uh, besides that I just can't think of right now. Um, but uh, if we're talking about um, soul-making um, in and through sex then uh, and sex in the service of soul... Um, and again, that doesn't need to be to the exclusion of, of any of these other things, I suppose. But um, but that involves um, soul making. Involves implies um, the presence of images and the engagement with images and all of that. So if we if we are interested in soul making, interested in the soul making going into every direction and dimension and domain of our existence, then that will include sex. And if we're interested in opening up sex and sexuality and sensuality, then it means allowing the soul making and the soulfulness and the imaginal and the erotic to imbue the the sex. Because remember, we can have sex without eros, right? Um, but it so it involves this this meeting and this um, uh, pervading of each other, the imaginal and the sexual. And then the question: If we're interested in soul making with regard to sex, what allows, what supports, um, for example, um, memories of sexual moments with? Uh, 
be on one's own again, could be with another. Or, um, what allows memories of sexual moments to, to become images, in the sense of imaginal images? That's, again, mostly what we mean by the word images. What allows just a memory of a sexual moment to, to actually be, if you like, elevated or, or to have the fullness of, of, uh, of the imaginal? Or, during the actual sex itself, what allows and what supports the perceptions, the experiences in the present to become imaginal, to become image, to, 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 to have that kind of iconic um, sense to them, that sense of the eternal, that sense of dimensionality, divinity, participation, all of that. What allows and supports a perception in the present moment, during the loving, during the sex, um, that reveals um, uh, the multidimensionality there? What allows the multidimensionality to be revealed? What supports the multidimensionality to be discovered um, or revealed? So to me, that's quite an interesting question. What allows the soul, not just talking about heart, not reducing soul to heart? Yeah, so that's a not separate question, but um, or rather, it's a connected question, but it's but it's a different question. Talking about soul now, what is it that allows the sex to be soul making? Is it a matter of speed? Do we need to slow down to allow that dimensionality to fill out the perception to the perception to fill out into dimensionality of the imaginal? Maybe, maybe, but I wouldn't want to. I, w- I actually wouldn't want to be formulaic here. You know, does that mean you always have to have a slow sex? And by slow, it doesn't necessarily mean the actual physical movements. Just the pace of the whole thing. Is it perhaps a better way of saying? It, is it is it that um, we're not too carried away in a certain momentum of, um, if you like, goal orientation towards orgasm, or um, or carried away? contracted in a certain view or a certain intention. That's maybe a better way of putting it. So again, it has everything to do with contraction, and that's not just of heart. Not just of heart. Contraction of view, contraction of vision, contraction of sensibility. Yes? Um, So the heart could be open, but the sensibility and the soul-making sensibility or vision way of looking can actually be quite narrow closed, contracted, restricted to a certain view. So maybe the question is more about being either carried away in a certain contraction towards whatever goal we have, whether that's orgasm or whatever it is, or for me or for the partner or whatever, um, or or the view and, and the intention of the view or the intention get contracted. But if they're not, and if we're not carried away, and if it's not contracted, then then there's the possibility, perhaps, of perceiving, imagining, of this of the soul-making dynamic, eros psyche logos, actually in the moment expanding, having a life filling out, um, how you might say, it, the fire spreading or the water filling it out, plumping out and spreading, so that so that the dimensionality comes and and the the cosmic oasis comes or the vision of the other. Uh, the vision of oneself, the autoeroticism, all of this that we've touched on. Um, because we're not contracted in some kind of greed, some kind of craving, or some kind of contraction of view. But as I said, I wouldn't want to uh, 
uh, kind of impose some kind of rule or formula of exactly how that happens, you know. Um, but this is, to me, it's a really interesting question. And even then, uh, what's, you know, uh, amazing and what we can be thankful for is even sometimes if we miss some soul-making in the moment, um, the beauty of the emptiness of memory is that um, it can get, if you like, um, made soulful and and uh, dimensionality can be revealed and discovered and opened um, later in the memory, interestingly enough. So at the time, this doesn't go just for sexuality, of course, and sex, it goes for, for anything. It's like sometimes the vision in the moment is not consciously open enough. And yet as, we, uh, as the uh, memory exists for us, maybe the next day or whenever it is, um, can actually start to gather, um, if you like, imaginal uh, reality, imaginal dimensions. So to me, this is just interesting as 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 an exploration to open up. It's like, what about not just heartfulness, not just love, um, and not just all the other stuff that we mentioned, but what about soul making? Um, in what supports the soul making in the sexuality and the sexuality to be soul making? And related again to everything we said, if. Um, it's soul-making that we're interested in in the realm of sexuality and with respect to sexuality, then it might be that it's more obviously soul-making when the sex, uh, whether we're talking about actual sex or imaginal, uh, erotic, imaginal, sexual, imaginal, um, it it may seem at first easier when the sex uh, uh, or the image has a certain flavor or a certain tone or a certain kind of character to it. So, for example, it's very light, uh, kind of melty, and sort of very warm, etc. Obviously warm and tender. Maybe that might feel like that's obviously soul-making. Um, uh, again, whether that's imaginal or actual. But I would say, in, in the Eurosychologist land, because of the expansion, um, can we, and some people are find, will find this easier at certain times than others for lots of different reasons um, but the, the, the movement is to expansion and inclusion so that there will be not just the, the light and the melting and the sort of warm tender uh, sexuality that is obviously soul making but also as we said before the darker the more um, voracious etc uh, the less normal so this too, um, there's a lot of soul-making potential in that, or potentially there can be a lot of soul-making potential in that. Um, and again, we said this before, but don't you know jump to assuming so quickly. Some people will assume just because of the norms, because of a certain amount of indoctrination, because of the cultures. Oh, but that kind of thing must be disrespectful. That kind of thing, uh, we assume that there's no love there. That kind of thing must be an objectification. I shouldn't objectify people. What does it mean to objectify? To, to me, part of what it means is not seeing and valuing the totality of the other person's being. Um, can we look again, look more closely, look more openly uh, and without assumptions and actually question, is it disrespectful? 
Is there really no love here? Am I objectifying? Etc. Is there perhaps a holiness, a divinity, a sacredness here, whatever words we might use, that's actually palpable and evident if we just can open our eyes and um, attune the gaze, uh, notice it, uh, perhaps relax the gaze? Because it's not something you can force. You can't go gazing at this image or this experience, forcing a kind of sense of sacredness there. don't want to be heavy-handed with this as... Remember the poetry of perception, the art of perception, the art of perception. And sometimes that's more a matter of of kind of being more open, more spacious, more receptive, more attuned, more subtle, more light. There's a time for heavy-handedness, there's a time for sort of laser beam attention, all that. And there's other times where what is we more is revealed in the art of perception through much uh, softer, less pressured approaches. But again, can you know, if we're talking about soul making can and we talked about the three different ways that um for instance um the that the sexuality and the sexual images and and language in uh tantric Buddhism could be interpreted as just a symbol. It's only symbolic referring to spiritual realities, certainly not um, bodily or sexual ones, or certainly not sexual ones, maybe energy body or something, but um, that's one interpretation. But if we're really interested in, again, bringing the soul-making, allowing the soul-making to fill out, to, um, to change and to open and to give dimensionality and beauty and divinity to our sense of sexuality and our experience of sex and sexuality, then we have to go beyond just this view, it's only symbolic. When we, uh, sexuality can only have a symbolic function in in the path, in, in spiritual teachings, etc. Can we... Is it possible, and I think it really is, to re-sanctify sex and sexuality? Um, that in a whole relationship, something that has been deemed dirty and kind of low, etc., or just received a modicum of soulfulness in its relation to heartfulness and I really love this person, etc., which is, you know, wonderful. But can we actually re-sanctify it? So, as I said, that means um, not just um, the light, but also the dark. Yeah, not just the insubstantial, but also the dense. Not just the gentle, but also the ferocious. So that the whole um, range of possibilities uh, becomes opened. We're not shrinking down, limiting the soul-making dynamic with regard to sexuality. And of course, in that, um, that third possible interpretation of sexuality in Tantric Buddhism, that it's <coughs> it's um, only a vehicle. It's just the most, ex- it just happens to be the most expedient vehicle for um, rechanneling the energy, body energies, so that the consciousness opens to emptiness or clear light, or so that you get a more intense bliss or ecstasy. Yeah, that's all good and fine and possible, and uh, certainly valuable to explore, um, and not that um, 
shall we say, not that impossible to explore. But um, but in in our in the way we're talking about all this, it's also a vehicle for soul making, and that uh, means the cosmopoesis and the divinity is wrapped up with it. As we said, in this whole sense of participation, it's not only symbolic, and it's not only a vehicle for bliss or energy or or um, uh, emptiness. So re-sanctification, uh, I, I would say, of sex and sexuality, actually, again, it involves the imaginal. It involves the imaginal. The, this is what will open a multiplicity and multidimensionality um, of, of sacredness in the perception of anything. Once the, uh, the relationship with that thing becomes erotic, imaginal. As we alluded to before, what can easily happen is instead of the um, uh, the relationship with sex and the um, conception of sex and the view of it and and the way we regard it, instead of being soul making and the sex itself and and the whole way we conceive of it and relate to it, it can it can very easily become about the ego. And that's different than soul making, isn't it? Because it's got this reification thing, and it's got this tight selfie thing. That's what we might. Ego's not a word I use a lot, but let's let's say that. And um, versus the dimensionality, the openness of the imaginal selfie, and the knowing image as image that happens in 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 our definition of soul making. So I think I mentioned early on uh, Michel Foucault and his uh, uh, history of sexuality. So he he, he did. A lot of these studies where he called it archaeology, um, sort of tracing movements of um, political movements or uh, certain discourses in in, uh, modern Western societies and uh, in modern Western culture and how certain discourses grew or took certain directions and certain institutions developed and ways of thinking and um, political laws and all, all kinds of things. Um, and then one of the studies he did was in relation to sexuality. also did something similar in relation to madness and other things as well. But um, So he, he traces um, through the 19th century, perhaps before, um, the, the sort of upsurge um, swelling in the kind of... Uh, discourses on sexuality um, that started in the 19th century. Suddenly there's this sort of burgeoning of discourses on sexuality. Um, and particularly among these discourses, um, they f- the focus on sort of details of um, what was regarded as sexual perversions from the norm. So that suddenly started being fascinating for people and chronicling it and dividing it up and um, diagnosing it and, and all, all the rest of it. And he traces certain kind of institutions, if you like, that um, uh, kind of uh, were part of that process and um, concentrated that process and kind of crystallized it. One was the Catholic confessional. Of course, people go and, Father, I've sinned, and what have you done? Well, I've masturbated, or whatever it is. And, and, um, uh, And then also Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, where there was an intense sort of scrutinizing on of sexual fantasy and sexual behavior, etc., and put in a quite a rigid interpretive framework, um, as was, generally speaking, the, the Catholic confessional, and other other things. 
um, other institutions and discourses, if you like, that emerged then in that time, in the 19th century. Um, I mean, the Catholic Commission goes back before, but there was perhaps a growth in that then. And um, uh, he's quite interested, Foucault was quite interested in power dynamics and uh, the, the sort of what happens to the whole notion of the human subject. So um, he traced, in this archaeology, he traced the emergence of a series of discourses and practices that actually um, either were deliberately designed or intended or inadvertently um, uh, had the effect of making the um, self, the subject of these uh, discourses or these procedures or institutions, more um, reliably and extensively responsible for itself. So um, I'm actually quoting something called, uh, someone called David West now, who wrote a book on um, on uh, certain philosophical streams in the in the 20th century uh, and before in Western philosophy. Um, but what, so Foucault's quite interested in in this sort of like something was um, really not much of an issue. Um, sexuality was promoted in this process from a, a relatively unimportant fact about bodies, like, I don't know, going to the toilet or digestion or something, um, to something decisive for an individual sense of identity. That's really quite quite interesting to me. Sexuality promoted from, from being a relatively unimportant fact about bodies in, in Western culture of a certain time, to something being something decisive for an individual sense of identity. Again, not for everyone, but quite a lot. So it becomes something quite loaded and quite um, central and intimately connected with the whole sense of self and identity. You understand? Um, and wrapped up in that is this whole power uh, dynamic, which Foucault was particularly interested in, um, so that... Um, for instance, in the Catholic confessional or in Freudian psychoanalysis, like this is, you are now responsible for this. We're opening up this territory. You're talking about this experience. We're interpreting it a certain way. Um, in Freud's case, it's something very dangerous that civilization needed to keep a lid on, so to speak, and maybe let out enough steam so the, the, the sort of boiler doesn't blow. But um, generally speaking, the uh, the id and the the sort of instinct of sexuality needs to be um, needs to be repressed to a certain to a certain extent or controlled at least to a certain extent. Um, and again, in the Catholic confession, it has a cer certain interpretive view of sexuality, and so this is now getting getting the subject, this self or that self, to be uh, in in West words more reliably and extensively responsible for itself. So something that. Uh, hadn't been so uh, this whole area that one needs to fret about and think about and control and um, that actually uh, it becomes now an area either to worry about, to feel guilty about, to obsess about or, and what's more common nowadays, is uh, a way that's kind of, as uh, uh, he points as central to my identity. So a lot of identity construction revolves around sexuality, sexual expression, sexual style, sexual manifestation, sexual experience, or lack of experience, this or that, sexual prowess, whatever it is. 
Um, and again, I, I probably wouldn't make this too black and white. I, I you know, I'm, I'm sure th- these were all seeds um, that existed in in Western culture anyway. But um, what's interesting is how they get amplified and drawn out and connected with um, the sense of identity. So this is related to I think something I've touched on. Um, a couple of times over the talks, is that our whole sense of self, our whole notion of self, and our whole actual sense of self, like who I feel I am, who you feel you are, what we feel is involved in a self and and important in a self, is actually enlarged um, in in modernism or with the advent of modernism to include, in this case, a new delineation, sexuality, what kind of sexuality, what's the sexual expression, what's the sexual style, what's the sexual domain of experience, etc. So, the larger point is that the, the self that we experience is so natural uh, and, and in, in many cases, problematic, is actually a different kind of self-experience than, say, of the... the um, that the Buddha was addressing in um, in the time of the part uh, that he was uh, teaching in India, Pali Canon Buddhism, we now have a whole kind of complexity and um, range and kind of landscape of psych- psychic interiority that and didn't really exist um, for people before these delineations were made whether it's sexuality or this or that or whatever. You, you understand? So the whole complexity and, and range, etc., making these delineations um, makes the interiority more complex and more um, more stretched, if you like. So, and, and then all this plays into questions about identity and our fretting about identity or our celebration of identity and all of that. Now, I'm not actually judging this, or even the rise of the importance of, uh, the rise of individualism and identity, I mean, it certainly has a shadow side, and we don't need to kind of rehearse that again and go over it, it's pretty obvious, especially if you've been exposed to any Dharma teachings. Um, but go back to what we were talking about, making delineations near the beginning of this course, and um, uh, Epictetus, I think it was, saying, everything's got two handles, beware of the wrong one. So when we make delineations, for instance, the, ident- the whole fretting of identity uh, can get hold of it um, in a way that's actually, um, yeah, like a double-edged sword. It's, it's problematic. Um, it can be problematic. Um, there has been a proliferation, uh, according to Foucault and, and even beyond his time, um, around sexuality and its relationship with identity and it's become, as I said, something decisive for an individual sense of identity. Not for everyone, and certain generations maybe less so. Um, uh, but certainly for uh, beyond a certain date, let's say, in Western society. Um, people may not talk about it so much, but that may also be wrapped up in you know reasons why we're not talking about it, and what's there might be someone not talking about it. Actually, there's quite there's still a kind of identity view around that, not for everyone. But this kind of proliferation, if you like, of delineations and of the whole um, 
emergence into what it means for the self and, and what a self is and the interiority and the complexity and the identity there. Um, it is a sort of double-edged sword. There's a, a growth there which we could regard as papancha or we could um, we could also regard it as exactly the eros-psychologos dynamic um, expanding. Um... In, in terms of making delineations, thinking about these things, um, having fantasies and images ar- around all that, and the, even the eros in regard to sexuality. In other words, the, the, the erotic relationship with sexuality in, in, the, in the meaning of the erotic imaginal, filling it out. So it can be that, um, and it can be that for the individual, or it can be a snag for the ego get too tight around this whole identity business and fretting and you know worrying and or feeling constrained or whatever it is. So as always in, in our way of thinking I'd say the test is 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 it soul making? Is it soul making? And if it's not, can I actually find a different relationship with it that opens it up as soul making? rather than it leading to kind of neurosis or worry about the self and the identity and alienation, pressure to conform, pressure to perform, whatever it is, or pressure to be interesting or unique or, or whatever. All this is um, the, 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 the concrete, narrow, contracted uh, self-view or ego, if we use that language. It's not soul-making. It's li- can soul making be the test here? You know, um, it doesn't need, or it shouldn't need saying, but it's, it's actually important to say there needs to be kindness with all this. You know how easily um, we can get either e- either very self-judgmental with this, or, or kind of down on ourselves, or worried about ourselves, or actually quite militant. Um, and rigid and in our thinking. Again, it's just too much concretism, um, concretization, too much literalism, too much reification. But really, in, in regard to all this um, and the possibilities um, in our relationship with sex and sexuality, and, um, you know, we really need kindness in the exploration. Yeah. So that's, that's really important to, to say that, to realize that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.